Welcome to another special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm okay, John. How are you? Pretty good. Enjoying the new year, which looks more or less the same as the last year so far. Maybe a big change will come when we uh, finally leave uh, COVID-19 pandemic behind. Otherwise, uh, days and weeks just and months blend into each other. Yeah, that's true. And we were supposed to go back to the office at my job uh, in January, but the rising cases made it so they pushed it back uh, another couple months. So now in March, maybe we'll get back. So we'll see how that goes. I'd love the option of working from home, but I work in a museum slash art gallery, so I have to be present. <laughs> I Yeah, I'm I'm done with working from home. I, I I'd like to go back as soon as possible, but it's it's not up to me. All right. So in this special episode of uh, Heroic Purgatory, we will take a step back, uh, review on uh, the year that passed us, 2021, and maybe talk about what were our favorite movies that were released in 2021. So to uh, to give this this uh, list some structure, we decided. To, you know, to set the rule that the movies that we end up choosing as our favorites of 2021 had to be released in some form in 2021. So that doesn't mean they have to be 2021 movies, but they had to have some sort of release that was a 2021, like either a home media release or a festival release or a theatrical re- release or anything related. So they can they can just be old movies that we saw in 21, 2021 for the first time, but to have had to have some sort of uh, release in that year just to you know give some structure to the episode otherwise uh, it's open season for anything yeah but before we get to that before we get to our best of 2021 uh lists uh we can talk about our media consumption since last time we spoke so jason what have you been uh doing since uh a month ago i think it was when we did our christmas special approximately yeah just just over a month ago so um since that time since the last time we talked um i've been uh spending time with family um and then eventually having to go back to work uh in terms of movies i've watched uh thanks to amazon prime it uh titles such as the usual suspects robocop rain man and um zombie for sale i started watching that and the anime series onihei um and thanks to some uh websites uh like Cinematheque Francaise and the Documentary Alliance uh, film website, I've been able to watch uh, Japanese films that would only be on the festival circuit for free, and it's all totally legal. And um, I'll go into more detail uh, with the news announcements section about those films. I see, I see. And I believe you've posted them on Twitter, uh, so anyone interested would um, uh, can look there on your personal Twitter and, I, and also on our Twitter, and you'll find the, they'll find the appropriate links. Yeah, this is a fantastic opportunity to watch like the sorts of films you would only see at festivals. So uh, please let me know what you think if you do have the time to watch these films. Uh, you can find all details on Twitter. And again, I'll go into more details uh, 
in the news announcements section. So, uh, just a, a did you was this the first time that you'd seen the Usual Suspects? Uh, I watched it uh, in the nineties. I want to say when I was a teenager when it first came out. Um, so I knew the twist of all the yeah uh, the usual yeah the usual suspects. Um, only one of them could um, credibly be Kaiser Soze based on their behavior. Even yeah. if you're taking into account unreliable narration. Sure, sure, sure. I've given too much away, so you can cut that out. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, it's 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 extremely unlikely that anybody who hasn't seen the movie or at least doesn't know the twist. This is the kind of movie that even if you haven't seen it, you probably know the twist. Hmm. Okay. So, anything else? So, uh, yeah. In terms of video games, I'm playing uh, Jean d'Arc on the PSP, and um, it's uh. Uh, twist on the sort of medieval French heroine who beats the uh, English army and um, it's done in an anime style uh, by Level 5 Studios who also did um, Nino Kuni um, So this is the original PSP right? The original PSP yeah I've got oh. like a, a backlog of JRPGs and other games I on see. it so, I remember but- you mentioning the Vita I didn't realize you also had a, a PSP PSP first, then I upgraded to a Vita when I went to Japan. So, originally a uh, Nintendo fanboy, <laughs> and then Xbox uh, Dreamcast, and uh, gravitated towards Sony. Oh, PC, I started out with PC as well. Yeah, I've always, I mean, uh, mostly been a PC because it's just, I just never cared for, never really owned consoles except when I was really young. I, yeah, I find that uh, as someone who's been interested in Japanese um, pop culture and um, media since uh, I was a kid, like I've I went from PC gaming into console games, and so uh, as I've become an adult, handheld consoles have become like the primary form of video gaming that I do. Especially if you have long commutes. That I don't know if you do, but uh, they they tend to be. I mean, that's a pretty good. Although you could also spend that time reading. Yeah, I probably should be reading like Dostoevsky because everybody says I'm smart, but I don't particularly feel it. If I can at least get some references out, I might be able to fool people more. Sure, sure, sure. And yep, yeah, that's uh, yeah. After going back to work, I've been sort of recommending so some of the films I've been able to watch online in terms of like uh, the Japanese festival one. All right, that's great. So in terms of my media consumption, I also was started playing a game uh, on PC, the, um, uh, I'm blanking on the title right now, uh, Bioshock. Oh, okay. So the, the first one. And I, I, it was very interesting. It's kind of, uh, I, I haven't played it for a few days now. It's kind of gotten repetitive. I hope, I hope I'm not losing interest entirely. But, it, you know, the first, uh, the first few levels so were really interesting. And really, the, I like the art design of that. Uh, the story so far, the sort of the setting. I mean, that's that's I think the whole appeal, or at least the 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 primary appeal of the game. It's just a very fascinating setting and a very fascinating art style. Uh, but the play style kind of got repetitive relatively fast. I'm not, and it kind of got. It started off as on training wheels, really easy, and then the difficulty just kind of ramped up, inst- almost instantaneously at that, at that point. Which I I guess that's part of the reason why I'm I'm kind of having trouble continuing to play, but. Uh, I'm I'm eager to see where the story goes uh, because that part is fascinating. Although the gameplay is not as as uh, appealing to me right now. Mm. 
it's got like an Art Nouveau style since it's um, inspired by 1920s, right? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, that's right. It's inspired by that. It kind of has a inspiration from the, at least artistically speaking, from the Ayn Rand uh, novels, Atlas Shrugged, and the other one. I forget the the copy, the the other book that you wrote. Uh, yeah, I tried reading Atlas Shrugged, and um, I gave up pretty quickly. It's 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 an eight hundred page doorstopper. Uh, not 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 really a good. Like from at least literary merits, it's a very poor, poorly written book. Um, so what else? Uh, oh yeah, I've been I've been reading a book called Game Wizards, which is a history the so depicts the early history of a company called TSR, which people maybe may know it as the original company that published the game Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Uh-uh. So the book deals with the 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 two people the, the the few people primarily responsible for starting and working at the company from its inception up to about 1985 I think when the main with the guy that started the company kind of lost his job essentially uh and it's a, interesting and I'm I've I've always been fascinated by the history of Dungeons and Dragons so this is a this was a new book I think it just re- was released a, maybe a month or so ago uh so I'm I'm reading that I'm about in the middle of it uh what else I've been watching the TV show Dexter, hmm. and initially I didn't think I'd like it, but I'm I'm liking it a lot now. I'm almost done actually with the with the show. It it reminds me a lot of Death Note. In fact, there's a lot of common elements into it. I mean, they're they're different and not they're they're sufficiently different that they you know they're worth watching. But but there are also a lot of common elements between the two. I mean, that's they're both uh, uh, centered on like a psychopaths trying to killing people for perceivably noble reasons except dexter has like a, a more a, a somewhat gothic quality to it I, i'm I'm really enjoying the show i recommend people check out if they if they have a chance mm. um and in in addition to that I, as i often do this time of year sort of the uh, p- preparing for the awards the uh, the upcoming awards i try to catch up on all the 2021 movies that i miss especially you know uh, english speaking one that i don't end up watching a lot during the year i try to catch up so i understand a lot of them i'll probably talk about in our actual d- official discussion section uh where we talk about so i did watch a lot uh, but some some noteworthy that i'm probably not going to mention later is i watched the Ma- the new matrix movie okay is it how is it uh, it was it's all right uh, nothing you know I, I'm i'm not the big i enjoy the the original trilogy and i you know, I mean, this might sound blasphemous, but I enjoy the entire trilogy, not just the first movie. Although the first movie is probably the better one. And this one is, um, feels like the product, and only one of the Wachowskis, or the Wachowskis, however you pronounce that, is involved. I forget which one, but it's only one of them that directed it, that or even participated in the production. The other one just didn't, wasn't feeling like. And apparently from what I've heard, this is a movie that they, that Warner Brother, Brothers begged them to do. And it felt like that. It felt like a movie that the, the creators didn't really want to do, but they were thrown a lot of money at. So they said, fine, we'll do it. And that's what it felt like. A movie that didn't really need to happen. The people didn't want to really want to make it. But since they made it, they might as well have fun with it. And that's what it felt like. It felt like a movie that someone had, had a lot of fun with. And it's so it's probably one of the most meta movies that I've seen. They reference themselves so often. <laughs> That it gets to the point of ridiculous, like the uh, the main character, uh, Keanu, the Keanu Reeves character, he 
uh, he is a game designer. He's 20 years older, of course. He's a game designer, and the original Matrix trilogy is a game that he designed. And they talk about that game just like in the real world people talk about the Matrix trilogy and how there's arguments on forums and all that. It's, all of that is essentially the movie. Oh, wow. It gets ridiculous. Of course, it turns <laughs> out that that whole thing is the Matrix trying to trick him into thinking that he didn't live uh, through the events of the original Matrix trilogy. Uh, but it's uh, at least the first 30 minutes is almost entirely a meta discussion on the original Matrix trilogy, which was pretty fascinating, but also a little bit ridiculous. I didn't make it through the original trilogy, and you're not selling this new one to me very well. No, I mean, if if you're a fan of the original trilogy, you won't be... I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing... Uh, it's, it, uh, there's a bit less action, I would say, uh, but there's nothing that will make you hate it, I don't think. I mean, it's not going to be... It's not going to... Especially, you know, most people like just the first movie, and they don't like two and three. Uh, yeah. So even then, you're not gonna you're not gonna fall in love with this movie, but you're not gonna be disappointed. I, I, you know, if you have, if you have HBO because that's where the movie is available, and uh, and you have, you know, you're not paying for it, you know, and you just don't know what to do one Saturday evening or whatever, sit down and watch it. I I think it's gonna be okay. Okay, that's that's essentially how I'd recommend this film. I mean, judging from the trailer, it was a lot more colorful than the original trilogy, which is the drabness of something I dislike. I think the all the special effects, the cinematography, all that were fine, except you know the caveat that you know in two thousand twenty one, they're not as impressive as they were in nineteen ninety nine. I guess that's the that's the catch. But otherwise, they were fine. I had nothing to complain about. Yeah. Um. I wanted to. I thought of checking out Eternals, but I have not heard a single word of praise for that movie from anybody that I follow. Everybody that I know has, has has been disappointed by that movie. A friend of mine, who's a big Marvel fan, he enjoyed it. Yeah, he said it's okay. He just said okay, it's okay. I might check it out. I don't know if the people that were disappointed were so because they if the movie was truly bad, or if they were disappointed because they expected a lot more of Chloe Zhao. So I, that could be that. And I just didn't feel like going down that road of of you know having even though if if we if People remember our discussion initially. I did think that you know I'm not. I just can't see how she could, she could direct a movie like that. Is just when that I guess turned out to be true. If if the majority of people's reactions are are to be believed, so I just didn't want to. But maybe maybe I'll check it out. Um, and I watched a, a bunch of a bunch of other 2021 movies that I'm going to talk about later. I don't want to go into them now. Uh, but that was most of my uh entertainment experience since last time we spoke sounds good all right uh so after that we can uh, jump into our new sex uh, segment a- and uh the only the only thing that kind of caught my attention was that the japanese movie drive my car which is uh uh i, I forget the director's name but i know it was adapted from a um haruki Murak- uh, murakami uh yeah. short story so the director is ryusuke hamaguchi Okay, yeah. Who's I'm, I have I can't believe I don't think I looked up his filmography and I don't think I've seen any of his other films. Yeah, uh he really broke out into uh the international festival circuit with the 2015 film, I think it's 2015 Happy Hour, which is like a four or five hour drama about um four female mid, uh middle-aged women in Kobe and their sort of daily lives. I sat through that at London Film Festival and actually enjoyed it. Uh 
and since then he's gone on to helm uh well he's gone on to write scripts uh award-winning scripts like uh, wife of a spy as well i see okay so he wrote he wrote that one because i was going to make the comment that i don't think uh his films have i mean he has received acclaim in japan but i'm not aware that any of his films until this one have broken into the international uh, uh attention but the wife of a spy might be an exception to that yeah he co-wrote that with another chap he regularly writes with but he was known on the festival circuit before that happy hour and then um the following film um uh asako one and two which played at the Cannes film festival so happy oh yeah hour. i've heard of I, I saw that one yep i mean i yeah. saw the not not the film i saw the i saw that he did play there yeah yeah, Happy Hour like won uh like Best Actress Award for the ensemble cast at Locarno Film Festival, which is where it really blew up back in uh, 2015. And then Asako One and Two was at Cannes Film Festival in 2018, I think. Uh, before that, he was uh, some of his projects were actually on the international festival circuit, but it's like um like really specialist programmers selecting his stuff. So it's been like being a gradual sort of blossoming of his career, and then twenty twenty one is when he really hit the big time with Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which won an award at Berlinale last year, and Drive My Car, which has been like sweeping awards uh, award ceremonies around the world. Yeah, and I don't think uh, I don't think the yeah I'm pretty sure the Oscars have not been announced yet, but it's a very high contender to be nominated and possibly to win it. Yeah, I like um, France's. Uh, I can't think of any other films that have uh, accrued as much sort of um, cultural um, uh, credit up to this point. Like, wait, uh, so it's a sh- kind of like a good indication of that it might actually win an award. Yeah, it's it's possible. I mean, there is a couple that come into my mind that I might talk about later. Uh, but uh, yeah, in terms of non-English speaking films, this seems to be. Uh, you know, top content. Although you know, we are very much focused on Asian cinema, so there's entirely possible that something big has flown under our radar. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but you also you were going to talk about a couple of other news items. So yeah, if anybody who follows um, the heroic purgatory Twitter account or my own personal Twitter account um, will be aware that since uh, mid December last year, I've been tweeting about uh, a couple of. Uh, streaming services that are legally showing um, Japanese films, the sorts of which you would only see at a film festival. And these are like high quality, critically acclaimed features and shorts. Uh, the first one I want to mention is uh, the Cinémathèque Française website. And there's a streaming service called Henri. Uh, <laughs> I think the pronunciation is correct. Um, and they have a collection of like French and Japanese films. Uh, French films skew a bit older, but the Japanese films are from the last, I would say, last 10 years. And um, on that service, uh, there's about nine currently available, and they're going to be available until the middle of February. Um, they have English and French subtitles, and uh, yeah, you can watch them as many times as you like. Um, and one of the films in my sort of best of uh, last year, uh, I viewed on this website. And I've been publishing some reviews of some of the films I've seen on my personal blog. So uh, 
recommendations out of all of them. Uh, a song I remember, which uh, the review went live earlier today. Um, and uh, I'll mention uh, the other one in my top of uh, top films of last year. Uh, and the second service I want to talk about is dafilms.com, Documentary Alliance Films, which is a subscription service. Um, I think it's like for six euros uh, a month you can watch uh, documentaries. Uh, again, these are sorts of things you would only see at film festivals. Uh, this uh, Documentary Alliance is made up of like um, film festivals from around Europe, I believe, and they've pulled their resources together to create this really uh, cheap or cost-effective way of uh, viewing what professional critics are seeing. And uh, they're currently collaborating for the Yamagata International Documentary Festival from January 17th to February 6th uh, to show 10 films from like the 32-year history of the Yamagata International Documentary Film Festival. And um, so I have some recommendations. So uh, The New God by Yutaka Tsuchiya, which is a 1999 film about uh, his interactions with uh, uh, ultra-nationalist far-right punk rock group. Um, and A2 by um, Tatsuya Mori, which is about, uh, I think it's made around the same time period, and his interactions with, the, with a cult, the cult that released the nerve gas in the Tokyo subway stations in 1995. And it's like the fall like, that happened to the cult members who um, weren't part of uh, that crime and how the media vilified them and um, whipped up sort of uh, public rage, which results in the members of the cult being ostracized by the communities. And um, if you liked Kazuo Hara's films, uh, I think you'll get something out of those two films. And then there's a really beautiful uh, movie by Kaori Oda uh, called Sinote, or Sinote, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but it's about um, sinkholes in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula and um, the communities around them. And um, she ventures into these sinkholes uh, with like 8mm camera and um, the iPhone, and she got some really beautiful images, and um, she also does all the sounds on her films as well so it's like really immersive experience so yeah those are my two news items i hope that was wasn't too jumbled no it was great uh isn't i, I might be getting my dates uh mixed up here but isn't also the osaka asian film festival soon or relatively soon oh okay so yeah um we are preparing the osaka asian film festival uh as we speak we well it's okay, good. Well underway. Um, is, is it February, right? That's what I sort of seem to remember, although maybe I, I'm not 100% it's usually sure. in March. And the, oh, dates, okay. the dates for this year is March 10th to the 20th. Okay, okay. Somehow I thought it was in February, but I suppose it's March. So, yeah, like preparations are underway. And, um, I don't know how much I can say at this point. Are you going to Japan for it? Japan's closed its borders. Ah, I see. It's, okay. it's had its borders closed throughout 2021 and um, it's continued uh, its period of isolation thanks to COVID-19. I see. Well, if it's in March, per perhaps we'll have another episode before then so we can, uh, we'll probably mention it 
as it gets closer, or if not, then we'll certainly tweet about it. Well, hopefully we could do a special about it, because we're an Asian cinema podcast, and the Osaka Asian Film Festival is probably one of the best uh, ways of viewing Asian cinema anywhere in the world. If, uh, out of the things that you can talk about, is do you know if it's going to be online, or... Da, da, da. I uh, I should have um, talked to the organizers about what I can and can't say. So um, okay, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. When if, you know, whenever whenever you get the clear head, just tweet it, and then that's uh, how we'll find out. I think the problem I have is that I'm scatterbrained. So, <laughs> like, I I think of oh, this is a good question to ask, and then like ten minutes later, I should have also asked that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we'll find out. Um, how was it last year? I'm sure you can say that. So last year I had to uh, attend virtually. You could say I was watching loads of screeners at home, and the quality of the films was really good. Um, and my but was it online distributed, or or did they do it in in theaters in person for the Japan for those who were there? It was a hybrid festival. Okay. So the in if you were in Japan, you could go to cinema screenings and. Um, also, you could view films across Japan online as well. And I think some films were made available globally. Ah, nice. Okay. I, I seem to remember that. I seem to remember that as well. Okay. Okay. It sounds good. So hopefully we're able to, I don't know, maybe get another episode in or something, and then I can elaborate more about what's going to go happen. All right. So I think that's, that's enough for our new segment. We can jump uh, right in into our main discussion where we'll talk about our favorite films of 2021. Now, these films can be anything. They don't have to be Asian. And just like I said in the beginning, the only rule that we have is that these movies have to have, uh, had to have been released in, in the year 2021 in some form. They don't have to be movies from 2021 per se. But if there was a festival release or a new home media release or anything like that, I suppose it counts. And uh, I suspect your choices, Jason, are a little bit more a uh, Asian-centered than my choices. I think I tried to spread it out a little bit. And a lot of the movies that I added on the list are recent watches that are sort of uh, what you call the award-groomed movies that are, you know, there's a lot of talk about them. So perhaps that influenced me a little bit. I think one of the problems I have is that I haven't been to a cinema since Japan 2020. And um, I really want to go back, but I haven't like had a good reason to. Yeah. I'm also, I don't know about you, sorry to interrupt you, but I had the problem that as I was writing down different movies or as I was considering, a lot of 2020 movies that I had seen in 2020 had kind of blended in and I had a hard time sort of distinguishing about what movies I'd seen in 2020 and what movies I'd seen in 2021 because... Both years, I went to the cinema so little. I think I went to the cinema maybe a handful of times uh, just to watch occasionally. So I kind of, I had a hard time uh, telling those two years apart, frankly. Yeah, it's like cinema, going to a cinema offers sort of like a structure to how you remember these things. And I, like, I haven't had that structure, so it's been loads of screeners and it's kind of like um, I've been in the same predicament. Absolutely. And I think that's the perfect uh, segue to our uh, main discussion, which is rank uh, uh, talking about. And I think we've limited the list to 10 to our top 10 of the year, uh, even though that's somewhat an arbitrary number, but we had to cut to, to set a cutoff at some point. So 10 is just as good as any. And then perhaps after that, we'll talk about, you know, some honorable mentions. I have some extra written down here. I know you have as well. So 
Jason, why don't you go ahead and give us uh, what's your number 10 movie uh, for 2021? So, uh, Domains. Uh, which is one of the films I watched on Cinémathèque Française, and I think it was the final film that I watched last year. And it's by Natska Kusano. It was originally released in 2018, and it was commissioned by uh, the Aichi Arts Center. Uh, so it's kind of like um, uh, just as much uh, it's a cinema piece, but would be screened in an art space. And it's a two-hour, 30-minute drama about um, a woman named Aki who is involved in the death of her childhood friend's daughter. And like on paper, you might expect that to be a typical melodrama, but the execution of it was really absorbing. I love the structure of the film, which is like um, repeating key scenes of the two women's relationships, uh, plus the uh, mother, uh, plus the husband, uh, the father of the daughter who gets killed, and um, his involvement in the two women. And it's these the, these key scenes are done in the form of different rehearsals in different rehearsal spaces. So it's kind of like you get a, a first table read where the actors are around each other and they've got water bottles and they're like reading from a script and it's a little bit mechanical and then there are more layers where they're wearing costumes and they've got props and they're in the location of the home and they're embodying the characters and there's this evolution of um performance from the different layers as you see them get involved in the characters and bring to life this relationship and the subtext is like how like how female the female characters feel trapped by the circumstances maybe employment or by domesticity and um like it leads to this really it's hard to, like for the the woman who kills the child it's like she can't quite define why she did it but it's like she wants to recapture like her friend's attention um to free her friend from her situation and like over the series of the table reads it becomes a very claustrophobic experience and an absorbing experience because you're seeing the actors portray characters who are like really riven by their circumstances they're stifled yeah i watched i watched it just a i watched it per when you sent me the link i checked it out and i thought it was the you get so the first scene is not like most of the film. The first scene is a genuinely acted scene with the woman is uh, with a, a police officer, a detective is confirming the woman's confession, and she needs to sort of confirm that that is indeed her confession and sign it, right? Yeah. And uh, and that's we get we get pretty much the whole story there everything in in broad strokes of course but we get pretty much everything there it's if i remember correctly it's mostly accurate there's nothing that she lied about in that confession she may have left some a few details here and there out but it's pretty much an accurate confession and then we see this sort of then we enter into this most ex- experimental part of the movie where we get through these essentially it's essentially the the rehearsal stage of making the film that she describes in her confession in the uh in that first scene yeah like the first scene was kind of like getting the, getting the facts of the case out of the way and the rest of the movie is dedicated to understanding why she why 
the child died. Why um, the main character behaved the way that she did. And um, with with uh, each key scene, there's like um, uh, a bit of the relationship between the adults. Um, and you can see how the husband becomes domineering and how he's jealous of the relationship between the two women and how much the relationship between the two women meant to the, the, the murderer. And um, it becomes really sort of um, engrossing as you're watching the evening uh, the performances evolve over the different layers of the performances uh, of the the rehearsals. I oh, so I read I read your review after watching it, and it sort of completely made sense to me that this would have been shown on a, on a an art museum as opposed to having a, a more conventional release because it 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 does seem such a, such such a museum piece to, for for lack of a better term. Um, it. I I have to, I have to say that it didn't I mean I definitely appreciate the experimentation that the that the director did I thought it was a very interesting take and and just uh, reading about I I read like a little summary I think on IMDb about it and it was very very fascinating the execution of it did not appeal to me as much as I think it did for you and that's I think that's often the case with experimental films it's it's you know it's it's they're very subjective as to what one person may see and another person didn't see i i i felt it just it it ran a little bit too long uh like the repetition the 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 repetition of every scene there was i mean this was essentially what might have been a 10 minute short film if had if the script that the characters were reading uh was actually filmed in a conventional way this would have been a very very short film and but through the process of rehearsal, so they repeated every scene as actors would in preparation for a film many, many times. And I think that just lasted a little bit too much, at least for my own personal preference. And there was even like a 20 or so minute uninterrupted take, or mostly uninterrupted take, where they're going through the entire script with the camera just bouncing back and forth. And like half of that is silence as they're reading the the um, stage directions or the camera directions, whatever it is. That they're reading, and I don't know. It just the whole thing felt like a bit too much for me. I would have, I think, I would have been more into the film if it had been a little bit shorter. If it had been uh, maybe fewer repetitions that they ended up, uh, ended up uh, getting. I totally see the evolution of the characters from going from you know characters who are complete strangers and they're just laughing with each other and snickering with each other as they're looking through the pages of the script and then turning the pages to characters who become a lot more understanding of their characters uh and their relationship but i don't think they needed that much repetition to actually achieve that uh, at least that's in my in my opinion yeah it's it's not a film that's going to appeal to everyone and um the uh, criticism of the repetition i've heard from others but i just found myself totally absorbed into it yeah, and that's what I mean when I said that. I mean, these are very subjective. What is just like looking at a painting? You one person might see the stars, uh, and another person just sees like scratches on on a on a tableau. So it's it's that's what that's what I think this film's. That's why I said it makes so much sense that this film would be an art piece, a museum piece, than a a more conventional m- movie. Yeah. All right. Anything else you would like to say about domains? Yeah. Well, it's currently available to watch on the Cinematheque Francaise website until uh, I think it's February oh, February 1st so yeah by the time this goes out it may not be available. I think I think they will have the audience will have a, at least a few days to, 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 to check it out if uh, I think this will probably be released before then. Okay. 
All right. So my number 10 is a bit of an unusual pick, but uh, I chose uh, South, the South Park two-part movie. So there's two movies. So post-COVID, it's South Park post-COVID and post-COVID 2, the return of COVID. Uh, and this is the first actually feature-length, a couple of feature-length movies that they've done since, I think, 1999, where they released their theatrical movie. And it was a surprise. I had more or less stopped watching South Park for the last couple of years. I check, or I intermittently check their episode because I think the show has somewhat declined in quality. But these two movies were a surprise, sort of surprisingly well done. Uh, it features the same characters, but grown up. So in their adult code, then it involves some science fiction in the sense that they go back in time and deal it. It's in the scenario of the film is the COVID has lasted for 50 years and only after, no, not 50 years, uh, 30 years, I think, something like that. Uh, and, uh, and after 30 years, they can finally, they're finally done with it, but then something happens that it scares them again and everybody panics and freaks out in typical uh, South Park fashion. But the ending, so the second part, the second movie, which is, so this is a one continuous story split in two movies. The ending is absolutely heartbreaking. I think it's, it's just so well done, but also it fits the characters of South Park perfectly. Um, and I think I don't want, there's a, somewhat of a twist, so I'm not going to spoil it. But I, I, if you have, I, in the US, this was released on Paramount Plus. I'm not sure the rest of the world where it might be available, maybe Netflix or something, or Amazon Prime. Uh, but I recommend everyone checking out, especially if you're familiar with South Park. You, it's 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 a hard movie to sort of get into it cold. I think you definitely need to be familiar with the show, especially with the more recent seasons, to to kind of to kind of appreciate the story because it's sort of connected. Mm. But but I still I'd recommend watching it. Because I think it's it's a well done and especially a upshot in quality compared to I think what South Park the show has been in recent years at least in my opinion. Okay. So I, that's, uh, that's my number 10. Right. Yeah. Um, so my number nine is uh, Joint, which we both watched as part of New York Asian Film Festival. That's right, yep. And uh, I actually first saw this uh, as part of the Osaka Asian Film Festival. And um, I think I liked it a lot more than you did. Um, what I liked about it was that it deals with like a familiar story of a guy trying to get out of criminal underworlds and the clash between um, old and new ways of criming, um, if that's a verb. And um, it actually gave it this really fascinating um, background, the, like the whole context of how Yakuza operate in modern day Japan. So in, yeah, they do construction companies and so forth, but there's also big money in buying and selling data which they use for fraud and um the film makes interesting comparisons with like corporations and how data is used to model um people's behavior and influence it and uh, i thought like that was a really like fascinating combination of two different worlds like crime and um cor corporate worlds and uh i liked the uh fact that you had um the inclusion of a foreign cr crime gang into it as well which uh yeah, this was all like heavily researched by the um, writer and director, and um, they bring to it a style which is uh, akin to Steven Soderbergh's um, film Traffic. And so I found it really like the text was just really fascinating and engrossing, and the look of it was uh, really great as well. Like great visual sheen and the set and costumes uh, 
and the acting are really atmospheric. Yeah, and and to be honest, yes. Yeah, so, so I, uh, you did like it more than I did. But to be honest, I, I, it's been a while since we recorded that episode, and I remember more, a lot more, of the stuff that I liked about the movie than the stuff I didn't, that I didn't like. So I remember, I remember my my problems were relatively trivial. Like the, I, th- I thought the camera direction was uh, betrayed its low budget. I think that's the phrase that I used at the time, or something. Along the sense, the sense that they were, you know, the lack of sets was obvious because they kept the camera too close on their faces, uh, and there was just too shaky at times. And I, f- I felt that the guy's beard was inconsistent. I remember that was thing, <laughs> if you remember, because and I don't know if that was a if time had passed or if that was just a continuity error. It was just the film was confusing. But I did appreciate, you know, if you're into Japanese cinema or maybe even into Asian cinema. Uh, in general, you've pretty much seen every gangster Yakuza movie and every variation of it that there is. And yet the the writer and director, I'm not sure if it was the same person. So the director's Odai Kojima and the uh, writer is like a single named uh, guy, Ham R. Okay. But, you know, they still managed to give us a completely fresh take on the Yakuza story and modernize it in a way that I just, you know, nobody, at least to my knowledge, nobody has ever been able to do before. I don't know if this trend will continue, uh, but, you know, it's just, it, it makes perfect sense that sort of, that's what would happen. That's what the Yakuza would sort of move to in the 21st century, in the age of information. Yeah, like um, Yakuza movies now, like... Um really glossy um, films like Yakuza and the Family, like very melodramatic. Or they're like ultra-violent, like The Last of the Wolves, but they're all applying the same sort of tropes that like Kinji Fukusaku established. Or like they're saying nothing new. And like you said, Joint is very fresh. Feels very fresh. All right. So my number nine movie is Ninja Girl, which we also saw in... uh the New York Asian Film Festival a few months ago. And I, I have to be honest, at the time, while I still spoke highly of the movie, I didn't never thought that it would be in my top 2021 films of the year, but it's I only remember it fondly since then, and I sort of remember the its best part, even though it's a bit cheesy at times, even though I think the homage to, the homage to sort of the 80s felt a bit cheesy at the time. I, I honestly think it it works in the favor of the movie and the style that he sort of tried to emulate. And I thought the characters were very sort of well-designed. And I thought the acting, especially the main, uh, the main protagonist, the sort of the woman in question that is trying to kind of get into the bottom of that, you know, such a small town conspiracy, but the, the, the one that has almost like worldwide implication in terms of its gravitas. I thought it was just like, extremely fascinating on the whole yeah this this is number five on my list okay uh but yeah so it just it just like i said it's it's a it's a sleeper hit uh, that's why i at least in terms of my own uh my own appreciation it didn't it doesn't seem like it's that good of a movie but i think kind of definitely grows on you and i kind of wish this is one of the movie that i kind of want to see again i don't obviously i don't think our screeners from the new york uh fest new york asian film festival are still working but uh if I have if I if I have the chance, I'll definitely gonna would want to check this one out because it's I, I think it's a great film. It's a, just in, in addition to I think how well it is acted, how well it's directed, and how sort of greatly it does it so much. It's also a very very fun film to watch. Yeah, I, I like it. I wrote a very long rambly review, uh, basically praising it. Like I 
enjoyed how, like the character arc of the main character, how she goes from maybe maybe a little apathetic and naive to like highly engaged. And when I say highly engaged, I mean she's ninjaing everybody in town <laughs> mm. in order to like break free of a stifling society where conformity and allowing the bad guys to win would be the easy option. And yeah, like that aspect of um being stifled it's like really perfectly delivered by the technical aspects of film like the aspect ratio uh the depopulated setting and like um the quietness of the soundtrack and like the overbearing characters that surround her and it's all told in like a snappy 88 minutes absolutely yeah yeah absolutely and the four three aspect ratio i, sh- I forgot to mention that that's always that's always a plus in my book mm. and yeah and i like the fact that it wore its politics on its sleeve like very this is a uh, like it feels like Japanese films are on the whole veer away from being too openly political, draws upon real world scandals, even like a, a a very political person like say Hayao Miyazaki, he still is very careful to hide the politics from his movies. Of course, in broad strokes, he doesn't, but in terms, he never gets contemporary or he never gets too detailed. Yeah, in terms of like dramatic fiction, like Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters. Like is probably like the most political Japanese film that uh, many people might see. That's what it feels like at times. Where like documentarians, like um, uh, Tatsuya Mori, like make deliberately political works. And there's dramas like The Journalist, which is currently on Netflix, um, that are referencing sort of like real world politics. But this Ninja Girl does it in a really unique way with like a, a parody of the ninja movies while also taking on real life proto-fascistic actions of the liberal democratic party yeah and actually i think hong kong is even worse because i i can't you know, off the top of my head i can't think of a single hong kong film that is even remotely political uh, but uh, i think south korea is perhaps the 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 black sheep in the sense that a lot of south korean movies at least in in the ones that i can remember tend to be a lot more political than Japanese movies uh, in the 21st century, that is. Yeah, it feels like it's there in the subtext, but they're also willing to address it openly as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, thinking back as uh, a movie that I uh, I sadly could not, my rules would not allow you to put into uh, into your top list because it came out in 97, but number three, as early as that, I mean, you know, there was that's a very political movie I mean, they can be interpreted in so many ways. It can be just a general a satire of society, but it's also a very political movie. Mm. I, I, yeah, this is like, I, do you think this is one of the reasons like South Korean movies are gaining traction, whereas Japanese movies? No, no, it's, it's, it's never the message. It's always the entertainment value. Uh, it's I. That's that's my cynical take. So there's just a slickness. It's the slickness. It's the quality, and it's also the novelty is something different, yet I think appealing enough that we can sort of, it's not so different that we just see it as unrecognizable in the West, but it's different enough and it's appealing enough that it hits that perfect combination. I don't think it's the politics that really appeal to us. Although, again, maybe I'm proven wrong, I don't know, but in my opinion, it's not It's not that. Well, for nerdy film critics like us, <laughs> the politics is a draw. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, of course, like all art, yes. <laughs> okay. So, uh, my next movie is one I saw at the Osaka Asian Film Festival, and it's 
called Yes, Yes, Yes. And um, it's a human drama, 74 minutes, and it's shot in black and white. And it focuses, like, the audience uh, on the actors, their interactions, what they say, how they move. And you see the sort of dissolution of a family and its rebirth. Um, what happens in the story is uh, mother uh, is told she may not be able to leave a hosp- leave the hospital because of a recurring disease, and um, the teenage son takes it really badly. Um, the daughter, she's on her way to single motherhood, and the father, like he's tried to play the patriarch, but he's falling apart inside, so he's wearing a false mask, and um, it like. The story takes place over a couple of days, and the acting's really intense as the characters go through like discussions of life and death, but it's all all in the subtext it's all in the conflicts that they have with each other and uh it made me think about sort of mortality uh my my own mortality and like my mother's my sister's and the relationships in my life and it made me value them a lot more so it's seventy four minute drama and I've only seen it play at um nippon connection which is really disappointing because it is really profound in terms of um its message and also really moving due to the acting yeah i and obviously, obviously have not seen this one i i would like to based on your description uh, but that's kind of what makes me i think uh, a little bit disappointed is that a lot of these movies that either we discuss on this show or we do in our specials of course or the movie that we review for v cinema or the movies that you review for your blog uh, other than the festivals and the screeners that we get as a result from the festivals, or if you get to attend the festivals, there's probably no other way to view them in the West, at least legally speaking, because a lot of them don't see a release, uh, don't see a, a Western release. Although, I don't know, now with the internet, that's gotten a little bit better. But that's still disappointing that, you know, I, I have no idea how to go about seeing this movie. That's, you know, just, you know, I have to be lucky enough for you to actually get a release in the first place, then I also have to be double lucky so I, I happen to hear about it when it gets a new release. Yeah, like, I think due to COVID-19 you've had, like, we've discussed this before but, like, there's been um increasing, like, streaming events and, like, uh, festivals putting stuff online and you've also got, like, the Japan um, Film Festival, I think that's its name, where they screen dramas, uh, like, from oh do you mean japan cuts not japan cuts there's another one i actually i should have told you because they're they're like japan film festival it's available in america but they're playing more dramas and some of the dramas like really small things that you would only see at a festival that's true but that's that's my point that even even though it may play more than once it's if you miss that window that narrow window that it, when it plays to some festival assuming that it's going to be online in the first place which for now it is and i'm hoping this trend continues but there's no guarantee that this trend will continue uh, but that's it once what if you miss that window then you you know you might never see and that movie again and you know things like like japan cuts is very good about bringing especially the popular ones or the movies that are acclaimed even if they're several years old like in the uh, and I'm going to talk about what was that that event that we talked about recently that was in, in from the Japan Society, the Flash Forward, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think th- there were movies as old as 2003 that have not seen other releases in the U.S. that were there. So, so those 
So Japan Society and, and organizations like that, they're pretty good about bringing those films back once in a while. It's still pretty limited, but at least it's, it's something. Yeah. So yeah, folks, if you're really interested and like you want the opportunity to see these films, keep up with the Heroic Purgatory Twitter account and I'll do my best to like spread news of when films are screening online. Yeah, I wonder if there is a equivalent organization like the Japan Society for say Hong Kong or or South Korea. That would be that be I mean maybe there is and I'm just, we're just not aware of it, but it, I I doubt there would be as active as uh Japan Society, although who knows. I think like um what's it the Korean um I there's a YouTube channel where the Korean Film Institute on put stuff older films in particular on YouTube. That's, I've heard of that, yes, yes. Taiwan is particularly active in um, giving free screenings of its films. Okay, all right, so that's good to know. Uh, maybe we can put some links up later on. So yeah, Korean classic film, I think that's like sponsored by the Korean government, so you've got... Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I think they, they opened, they started doing that just a few years ago, so it's, it's, it's relatively recent. Yeah, like both countries realize this, this, like soft power, I guess, is the key. Absolutely. And they do a much better job of putting stuff out there than um, Japan and Hong Kong. All right. Uh, so my next movie is an older movie, but it's within the rules because it was released this in 2021 as part of the Kazuohara retrospective, and it is The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On uh, in 1984, 1985, I think. Uh, released sometime in the 80s and it is we talked about this in our special and I think I might have said this was my favorite movie of the ones from that special uh, and it was the first time that I'd seen this documentary although I had heard about it and it was just very uh, gut punching it was very very powerful very very well done as a documentary as a, as a work of cinema but also very uh, very effective as a, a piece of activism as well and I think it's you know uh, it's maybe Kazuohara's best documentary, uh, certainly his most well-known, and I can sort of see why so many documentarists have cited it as, as very influential, because it is just, he goes to places that a lot of other people will probably shy away from, and he, especially, I think we come at a time how he just pesters people and keeps pestering people about uh, about things like those two police officers when uh, they're just doing the job and he just kind of keeps accusing them of being uh, like pawns of the government or whatnot. I, I was, yeah, I remembered your comment. I keep thinking about that comment you made. Yeah, like they're just, you know, they're just there because he was blocking the street or something. And they're, you know, yeah. they're just salary people. They're just, you know, so they're just. This, responding. this isn't coming off the way you think it is. Yeah, but it's still, you know, that's, I guess that's, that's the, the, I guess the, the risk of being that daring is that, yes, you get to truths that nobody else can, but you also, are a bit of an ass to people that maybe don't deserve it. Um, and I think we also commented about the wife of the main guy. Yeah, the eternally that, put upon wife. Who's... <laughs> yeah, who was very, very patient with him. Mm. Uh, but still, you know, those things aside, I, I, I still, this, that was an extremely powerful film. And um, and I, I, rec I mean, I, I don't know if, I'm sure there, this has been released in some form of home media in the US, so I'm sure you can get it, and I recommend everyone who hasn't watched this documentary to watch it, because it's, uh, it's really good, and it's also like a really, as, as, like I said, as a piece of cinema, it's, it really moves at a really you know, good pace. It's, it's a very entertaining documentary also. 
yeah, this one also made my list. And again, because it's just, like you said, willing to go places that like few others would go to. And um, Kazuhara like throws any sense of neutrality away and like he's like taking part in this madman's sort of quest to uncover the truth. And like, it's a comedy of manners as you see people go through various formalities and observe social mores, but then it breaks out into utter violence and um, there are horrifying confessions. And it's kind of like, it, at times it's distressing to watch like elderly guys fight each other, but ultimately you have to like confront this truth if you want to avoid like um, whitewashing history and like repeating maybe World War Two. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so what's your next film? So yeah, my next film is another Osaka Asian Film Festival one, and it's another drama, and it's another one that got me to think about family relations. And um, it's called Ito or Ito Michi um, to give it its Japanese title. And it was the win of the Grand Prix and Audience Award at last year's Osaka Asian Film Festival. And it's directed by Satoko Yokohama, who, um, like, uh, I've only seen a couple of her films. Like, uh, there's a short called Granny Girl, which I just did not understand what she was going for with that. But I liked her uh, 2015 drama, The Actor, which was uh, used, like, bit part players and put them on the center stage and showed what life was like uh, filming. or making films in Japan and how unglamorous it can be. And um, But Ito is about um, a teenage girl sort of learning to express herself. And um, she does so using a combination of uh, the regional culture of Aomori, which is the birthplace of the directors Tokyo Okohama and lead actress Ren Kumai. And also like the unlikely setting of a maid cafe. So you get uh, like the... Um, it's like a, a Tsuguru Shamisen. You have to explain what that is. The, 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 which part? <laughs> a maid cafe. A maid cafe. So customers, men, women, um, go to a cafe where uh, uh, women dressed up uh, in frilly outfits will ah. greet you. And um, uh, depending upon the type of cafe, because you could get ones with rude maids or you could get ones with very cheerful, polite ones. Uh, you know, they'll treat you in such a fashion. And um, in Ito, the lead character, she's um, a really gangly girl. She's awkward and she's shy. So she, there's like physical comedy there. But also there's like um, uh, a, a determination that she has in her character that she has to overcome it. And I found her journey to uh, overcome her awkwardness and to express herself really moving, especially as it incorporates elements of Aomori culture, like the Suguru Shamisen and like her family history uh, involving that. So yeah, again, it made me think of my own sort of family, my connection with my mother. And yeah, it's an example of like um, uh, of what Japanese film industry is really good at, which is like combining coming of age drama with like, um, or with regional, in regional settings. So, like another one is Haruka's Pottery, where a, a Tokyo office worker finds she's inspired to go to Okayama to make like uh, her own version of Bizen Pottery. And um, Ninja Girl is sort of fits the same category. I mean, it is a coming of age story of sorts. Yeah, and it's set in sleepy Saitama, which is just north yeah. of Tokyo. Yeah, of course. So yeah, like 
I don't know if it's like each of these each of these regions have film commissions and each of the directors <laughs> are yeah. probably working hand in hand to like um accentuate like different characteristics of the regions. But for Ito, like Satoki Yokohama, the director, she's from that region and it feels like you're getting a real slice of the culture. And it's not just a by the numbers drama, it's a really well made drama with a lot of heart. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think in um one thing that I like about a lot of the sort of Japanese films that are shot, whatever they shot, uh, unlike, for example, Hollywood or American films where, you know, like they have films that may be set all over the place. They usually just go and shoot the external scenes there or whatever they need to. And everything else is shot at a, sou- at a soundstage in Hollywood. Anything that doesn't require any location, any sort of visible location for whatever place like Idaho or whatever a particular movie's happen happens to be set uh it's uh that they just minimize their their own location time as as little as possible for a variety of reasons of how the american uh film industry works and i'm not going to go into that but in japan uh, most of, most in my experience when there's a movie that is set somewhere uh, i don't know is is tokyo sort of the center of the japanese industry i would imagine it is yeah it is yes so whatever, I mean, it's a movie that is not set in Tokyo. It is actually filmed, for the most part, in the place that it is set. Yeah. And that's, I think, I always appreciate the fact that, you know, it doesn't necessarily add to the quality of the film, or it just doesn't add that much. The story is still the most important thing. But it is a fact that I've always appreciated. And I think South Korea is more or less the same. Is they, they, their film industry can go, uh, is, is widespread, is not just grounded to one place. Although, of course... You know, there's a reason why it's centered in one place. A lot happens in Seoul or a lot happened in Tokyo. That won't change. But if there are, there are a lot of these films that happen in other places and they are indeed shot in the places where they're supposed to take place. Mm, absolutely. All right. So my next uh, in the list, and I think this is uh, number seven. Yes. It's uh, the new Paul Verhoeven film, Benedetta. Okay. Nuns. Yes, Gone so lesbian, lesbian nuns. And it's, it's, Paul Verhoeven has made, I think, three films since he returned to Netherlands. He's made uh, The Black Book, which is about occupation. He's made L a couple of years ago, or, you know, a few years ago, I think, uh, with, uh, what's the name of that actress? Isabel Huppert. Isabel Huppert. And he's made also, and then he made Benedetta. And all of them have, uh, have uh, had female protagonists, which is, he seems to be, interested in in since he returned all of them are great i think this might be my least favorite of those three that he's made in the netherlands uh in recent years but it's still a really great film and it has i think i would not have put it on the list because i think as a as a film itself has a few of it as a few weaknesses but it has perhaps one of the most fascinating female protagonists that i've ever seen or just the most fascinating protagonist that i've ever seen she is just it's impossible to characterize whether she's a hero or a villain, and whether she is deceptive or whether she is manipulative or whether she, and most likely she's all of them, or whether she's a victim or whether she's the manipulator. What's essentially is about this, the, uh, uh, based on the, on the real biography of this nun who suffer, suffered several injuries uh, that she attributed to her communication with... Um, 
with uh, the angels and the demons and whatnot. And she eventually even underwent a, an exorcism because they thought she was possessed by certain demons. Uh, but a lot of, you know, high priests at the time, and this is heavily implied in the film, is that all those were self-inflicted because she wanted to rise to the top of her, of the organization, of the, of the non-convent that she was part of. And eventually she does. Uh, and it's just very fascinating, and sort of the the lesbian aspect of it is also almost incidental because it's really a story about her using every means in her disposal to rise in power and and just manipulate the world with whatever means she has as a, as a woman in that world. Uh, so it's just I think that's what really appealed to me is just per- fabulous acting by not just the main character but all all the char- the characters and the Charlotte Rampling is in this so she. She's a British actress, but her French was pretty good. The movie is, is takes place in Italy, but they speak French for some reason. Uh, a French colony in Italy. I don't. I think. I think it's just the actors that the Paul Verhoeven wanted to cast spoke French, and he speaks French, but not Italian. So yeah, Charlotte Rampling's had like a fantastic career in France. Oh, uh, interesting. In her middle age, like she's worked a lot with Francois Ozon. Okay, uh, it's like a big old tour over there. And she makes many French language films. Yes, and she's in Dexter too. Oh, okay, she I didn't is, know that. She's in, in the final season. Yeah. Uh, yes. So she, yeah, she's had an illustrious career, all in all. But this was a, a great movie as well. And this one's probably, I'm sure it's available to whoever is interested. So I would recommend it. I think, like I said, out of if you consider all the like uh, all the films that he's made in Netherlands since he returned there, Black Book, L, and her, and uh, Benedetta. Uh, I think this is the weakest of the three, but it's still a really great film. And Verhoeven certainly really knows what he's doing when it comes to uh, making movies that are, you know, a little bit scandalous, but also have great female protagonists. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll have a wander into that convent to see what's going on. Sure, yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, my next film, set in contemporary Japan. Uh, audiences are listening to this are probably rolling their eyes. <laughs> And um, I saw this one at the Osaka Asian Film Festival. It's called um, Goto-san. And it's a student movie uh, made uh, uh, just before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, And it's based on a true story of a guy who lived at his workplace, which is an internet cafe. Uh, So the story initially appears to be like a quirky comedy, a charming romance uh, set in this really uh, offbeat setting of an internet cafe. And you're not quite sure what to make of it because the protagonist is really sort of elusive. His character is elusive. He doesn't give too much about himself away. But as an audience, uh, we're probably like uh, really interested in his low uh, his no commitment lifestyle because he's got like cheap rent to pay and um he could be as laid back as he wants because he's in an easy place to work and then as the film progresses we see that he's economically insecure because he's not paid all that much it's casual like he's doing casual work and um his romance goes uh off the rails because he just can't afford to keep dating a girl who's also living at an internet cafe and she pays away by doing sex work and then like COVID-19 hits and like the internet cafe goes through 
troubled times and has to sh- shut down. And it turns into an economic horror story um, about just how precarious people on the lower rungs of society in casual work, um, like how precarious their situation is. And it's not heavy handed about the way it does it. Like a lot of stuff is in the background. So it's like um, visual signifiers, like um, members of a union protesting rising um, single motherhood and poverty rates in Japan. And you'll see homeless characters, um, like some of the people staying at the internet cafe, uh, like um, dying from overwork or um, doing drugs because like being a day laborer is absolutely horrible. And um, as all of this is going on, our main character seems to be floating through until he hits his own iceberg, and unemployment reveals that like he has no foundations in his life. And again, it's kind of like one of those films which is directly addresses like economics and politics in Japan, and it is unafraid to do it, which is why uh, it stuck with me uh, throughout all of last year, and it made my list. And you said this is a dramatic film, not a documentary, right? Yeah, it's a dramatic film, so it, it appears to be like a like a bit of a comedy because everybody's laid back and um, they're all cool characters, and you think, oh, it's a nice lifestyle, and then it turns into an economic horror movie because it's kind of like he has like no financial stability whatsoever, and it shows what happens when you don't have a permanent address, you can't pay your rent, and like all the stuff that you see around him, like homeless people on the streets, that's. Well, essentially, the fate he might be he might be heading to, and there are scenes shot during COVID nineteen pandemic, like empty streets of Shibuya, which are really atmospheric. Yeah, and that's I mean, if you wanted to, to do a zombie movie or something where civilization is uh, post apocalyptic, uh, it just COVID gives you the perfect. If you want to shoot guerrilla style, COVID gives you the perfect. Gave you, I mean, that's probably not true anymore. But in the beginning, the early days, that was probably perfect because nobody was out. Even even in a huge city like New York City, there were like these images of empty New York City streets that would have been a perfect opportunity to do that. Yeah, when when I got back from Japan in 2020, uh, April 2020, I flew into Heathrow and like just and I got got into center of London and I it was deserted. It was like 28 days later. And yeah, exactly. Like, there, like a huge train station. Um, that I, I used to get back home. I saw, like, usually it's crowded with people waiting for trains. And, like, when I boarded my train, I saw about, and it was six people. <laughs> it was just crazy because the lockdown had just started. Yeah, no, that's true. That's, that's absolutely right. It was just, it was, it was very eerie. I went, I went to New York around May. I had to go there for work. And it was, I think I might have mentioned this in the show, but it was, it was not completely empty, but it was, surprisingly uh the people were surprisingly scarce so it was it was very very unusual all right so my next uh entry so number six i think is the movie don't look up uh directed by adam mckay starring uh leonardo dicaprio and um jennifer lawrence in addition to some other people that i don't remember jonah hill i think is it and uh meryl street no is it yeah, Meryl, Meryl Streep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I forget. But I, I mostly remember Leo and Jennifer, uh, because they're most for, they're in for the most part. But it is, I can't think. I mean, the re, I mean, the movie is flawed in many ways. I think it's a bit over the top in certain times. Although I, I would perhaps that's an asset, not a flaw, because it it's intentionally so to overemphasize the point that it's trying to make. But it's nevertheless, I don't think I've seen a modern movie 
that captures as perfectly the folly of of the current time that we live in as the movie Don't Look Up does because it's about it's about this these uh, group of astrono- astronomers who sort of see an asteroid coming in uh headed for Earth and they try to go through all the channels to warn, you know, the government, the US government and the world government that something needs to be done. And then craziness ensues from then on. And it's just a constant battle to kind of, kind of like uh, for them to try to battle. It's extremely surreal in a sense, but try to battle everyone's sort of insanity and sort of society's kind of downfall to insanity. How the comet heading towards Earth, threatening to destroy civilization, seems to be the least concerning part of everything else that is going on. So it's it was extremely extremely impressed with this movie and it's you know I think like I said I I I don't like movies that are so unsubtle and so over the top so that's why uh you know I there's certain parts of the movie that I don't like as much because otherwise it would be number one for me it, I was so so it hit me so hard in in its message and it's kind of you know it's like mirror holding uh to what current society is like and I think the movie does it so so well mm. and it's currently on netflix it, it's on netflix in the u.s i suspect in the case so I, I strongly recommend people watching it because it's it's a very also a very entertaining movie uh but it's also so frustrating because it's so so honest and so real actually mm. so, like a parody of like uh media organizations and so forth everything yeah media social media mostly and you know uh politics every, everything that is going on with our society today i to escape the current ongoing disaster of covid19 we'll watch a climate uh oh and climate change we'll watch a film about meteorite obliterating everyone <laughs> yeah i mean the 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 people have said that it's the meteorite stands as a as a is a very obvious metaphor for climate change but <coughs> excuse me but it can be a lot more it doesn't just have to be climate change you can replace it with any impending uh, sort of uh, or 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 you know or looming threat in general and it's still the movie still holds because it sort of deals with people people it doesn't deal with the catastrophe itself it deals with people's responses to catastrophes and dangers and I, that's why i think it's a lot more universal than just climate change or yeah. just covid-19 yeah okay well i'm eager to watch it but i still haven't got a netflix subs- subscription <laughs> sure yeah so uh my next film is uh Hold Me Back, which I saw at the New York Asian Film Festival. I'm not sure if you saw it. I don't think you did. I don't think so. So yeah, it's um, a romantic comedy, um, uh, but it's uh, about a woman named Mitsuko who has an imaginary voice in her head named A, A for answer, and um, this voice gives her the confidence to do things in life that she might not ordinarily have. Um, such as going to restaurants alone and so forth. And uh, gives her a sort of advice on her love life when she meets uh, a nice guy who she's pining over and um, he seems like he's interested in her. And it's actually a, a universal story of learning to be brave and to essentially fly the nest because we see how she's built up a comfortable lifestyle for herself, but she's plagued with self-doubts, um, career woes, and um, so, um, like uh, being objectified as a woman as well, uh, and it, it sort of the film builds up to her, like 
reaching uh, terminal velocity as she leaves all that behind and she accepts that there's going to be uncertainty in life but she has to keep moving forward otherwise like she'll be miserable and it's a it's a, it's a relatively simple drama but i find it really engaging because of the lead performance of non who goes gives many layers from like a comedy and um like charmingness uh all the way through to self-doubt and um a final act of bravery and uh, yeah i like saw parts of myself in her which is why it resonated with me is uh, is the director someone we might know akiko oku and um she won an award for holding back at tokyo international film festival and she won an award at tokyo international film festival for another film that she did called tremble all you want um okay she's her films have featured uh japan cuts uh sweet grapper Rem- uh, remedies is a another film that she's made so okay, she specializes so the, in remedies female. sounds familiar yeah especially connection to jump japan cuts yeah she specializes in like female dramas but i think like the universal things universal stories that anybody can get into absolutely all right so my my next movie which i think is number five uh, is uh, the Silent Forest, and I forget the director's name. I I, I think it was a, um, a, f- a female director, but this is a Taiwanese movie that we also that also screened. I'm not sure if you saw it. Uh, I remember at the time you hadn't, uh, but it's it screened as part of the New York Asian Film Festival of 2021, and this was about a sexual. The story was based on a true story of sexual abuse and sexual assault of children in a school for the deaf. And it was, uh, like I said at the time, I have no idea if the actors that they used were truly, really deaf or just regular actors who had learned sign languages. But it was, I I think the thing, the story, of course, was just, you know, very, very heart-wrenching and uh, very, very powerful uh, in, in and on itself, in and of itself. But what I think, kind of impressed me the most about this movie is a lot of it happens in sign language in whatever uh the taiwanese standard for sign language is i'm sure uh and it was just so good the the director managed to capture sort of really powerful emotions that we generally see actors emoting mostly through their of course number one is actions which wouldn't be no different but the second is speech but this was sort of that element is completely lacking in, in sort of those parts of the film that were uh, that were spoken through with sign language, and is it was just it was just so it you couldn't tell the difference. It might as well uh, an actor shouting uh, like a William Shatner style, and it was still been the same as these actors just emoting and and uh, acting through sign language alone. It was just still so powerful, so emotional, and so effective that it kind of I still I still there are still certain scenes of the movie that I I remember very. Uh, vividly, especially one towards the climax, where one of the sort of the the one of the kids comes clean about what's been happening to them, uh, and it's just it's a great movie. I don't know if if there'll be a chance for it to see another release in into the West, but I recommend everyone the Silent Forest to check it out because I think uh, it's a great film. Let me see if I can find the name of the director, Ko Chien Nian. So I think this is a first-time director. I don't think it's a particularly well-known director. But it's uh, it's a Taiwanese film. If you get the chance, please watch it because I think it was a really, really good film. Okay. So uh, my number five was Ninja Girl. Is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't discuss when I mentioned it? I think we've covered 
the all the best bits. All right, all right. So my next is uh, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, which I just watched a few days ago, and I watched it expecting nothing. This was I, I watched it, and I'm, I, there's going to be a review shortly at V Cinema because I watched it as a as a, from a screener that for intending to review them, and this was meant to be. Uh, it was sort of marketed as a successor to One Cut of the Dead. And uh, so I, I kind of dismissed, I thought, okay, this is just a, a, a cheap a way, a cheap uh, attempt to capitalize on the popularity of One Cut of the Dead, which apparently is still very popular in Japan and perhaps elsewhere, which I mean, it was a great movie. I have, I have a lot of respect for One Cut of the Dead. Uh, but, uh, but I was surprised. This movie was just so wonderful in so, so many ways. And it was, um, it's, it's, it's shot mostly in one take. I don't remember if there were any cuts in the movie. I don't think it was genuinely one take. I think there are clever cuts that are masked, like, you know, when the camera goes in front of a black screen and then, or, or of something, some obstacle and then emerges on the other side. And obviously there was a cut there that is just hidden from the audience. And I'm pretty sure he was also shot on a cell phone, on a smartphone. Uh, so it's very, very low budget. And you can sort of tell that it was low budget. And it's also like barely over 70 minutes or like just barely 70 minutes. I think it's under 70 minutes, something like that. So it's a very, very, very short feature film, probably the shortest film that can still qualify as a feature film. And it's the story is basically about two TVs, two two webcams uh, and two monitor, two computers, basically, that are linked together, uh, but they're two minutes apart in time. So one monitor... Uh, if you if you are on the one, uh, let me let me try to explain this in a way that will be short and make sense. So if you're sitting on one monitor through one webcam, the person that you're communicating with the other uh, on the other side to the other monitor, which is actually downstairs at a coffee shop, is two minutes in the future. Okay. And vice versa. So from the other end, they're they're talking to someone two minutes from the past. So that's one. You know, one uh, the same person is can have a two minute conversation with themselves from the future, but then they have to go to the other side, to the other monitor, and actually have the same conversation. So it's sort of a, a high-concept science fiction movie th- that is done so, so, so well. And of course, there is, you know, there's uh, things that happen as they, they the, there's essentially a group of friends that they try to exploit this sudden power that they have to actually make money, but because the, the camera only sees two minutes into the future, that's a that's not a lot of things, so they have to come up with that's not a lot of time. They ha- have to come up with creative ways to exploit that and make make a profit and make money, and then things go wrong. And there is a lot of times, but it's 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 a wonderful a wonderful movie uh, that if you have the chance, I strongly recommend you watch it. Well, looking forward to your review. Yes, I will be. You should 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 finish it shortly in the next couple of days, and I'll send it off to V Cinema, so it should appear there. It's I think I've betrayed my feelings on the film, and so that's probably gonna. Be, it's obvious what my review is going to be like. So, my next film is The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. All right. I'm getting okay. some overlap. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we've covered that one already. Is there anything else that uh, you you we didn't get to say when I mentioned it? Can't think of anything at the moment. All right. Uh, so, my next one is something that I just mentioned, I think, a few episodes ago uh, that I saw as part of the Flash Forward uh, film release uh, from Japan Cuts. No, no, Japan Cuts. Japan Society. And this was the movie Jesus, which I think was released in 2017. But uh, was, again, this was another sort of home media release that that 
they re-released it in, in the North America only, I think, from Japan Society as part of their Flash Forward program. Uh, and I think I talked about it at the time. It was about a kid who, or the kid's family who moves into a remote area of Japan, and the only school available for their teenage son is a, uh, is a Christian school. Uh, and there he makes a friend, but then things go wrong. So it's about, and there's, the whole time he hallucinates a miniature Jesus that follows him around and grants him wishes. Sort of, not not exactly, but sort of grants him wishes, uh, and it's a it's a four three aspect ratio, which is always a plus in my book. Uh, and there's also it's also a very crisp seventy to eighty minutes, something like that. I forget exactly the right time, but it's a under ninety minutes film, and it just it starts. I, I and I think I mentioned this at the time as well. It starts as a light hearted family comedy or light hearted family drama. I guess it's not it's not very funny, uh, but then it just something happens and it's does a 180 and it turns into a very very sort of dark and uh and heartbreaking sort of drama almost towards the last third of the movie and it's like i said it's a it's a it's not very kind to religion but i also don't think it's particularly uh offensive i think it's it's sort of a fair criticism of certain religious habits that i that i think the people of japan follow uh well not not religious habits that's not the 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 right term, but maybe appropriation of sort of Western religions in Japan and and whether or not they really work for 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 their own culture and um, among among the things that I think they, the film tries to tackle in some some ways. So it's one I haven't seen. Yes, I I, I strongly recommend. Catch. I think I suspect this because I've seen this advertised a couple. Of, I think it made the festival circuits back then when it was released and it's coming back. So maybe this movie will come back another time. I I strongly recommend people check it out if it does. Right. Uh, so my number two film is Junkhead. That's my number two as well. Okay. Oh, nice. Well, I thought it would be your number one. <laughs> it, it, it was, and then something came along and displaced it. Oh, it must be something really good because you were super enthusiastic about it. I, I was. And, you know, like I said, this is, I rated them today. I, I, I did the order Next week, my opinion might change and it might go back to number one. So, you know, number one and number two, the difference is going to, not going to be uh, very quantitative. It's more of a, this is what I'm feeling like today. Uh, mm. Who knows how I'm going to feel about next week or next month. So, yeah, I, as far as Junkhead goes, yeah, connected to, uh, <laughs> I actually got the uh, Blu-ray and um, like the uh, storyboard I saw book. that. Yeah. I saw that, yeah. So that was a, a nice gift to get over Christmas. Um, I'm a big fan of Tsutomo Nihei, who did um, Biomega and um, Knights of Sidonia and Abara. And uh, like Junkhead really sort of scratched that itch for like dystopian sci-fi uh, setting and uh, weird biomorphous characters. And it's done in a smooth stop-motion animation style. Um, Usually with stop motion, I associate it with like fairy tales or like Alice, like Jan's Frank Meyer's Alice in Wonderland or Peter and the Wolf. Um, very rarely do I see sci fi movies done in stop motion style. Uh, and yet Junkhead is perfect. Uh, yeah. Like I, I couldn't, it would be, I, I couldn't imagine it done in live action. It'd be too expensive. It wouldn't be so interesting. Uh, CG would be boring, like standard 2D animation as well. So yeah, like the physicality of the sets and the characters and the, the, the detailing of everything is just brilliant. And it has loads of um, great special effects and camera work that gives it a level of kineticism that makes it exciting to watch. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm as I mentioned in this show, I'm I am constantly reading and watching science fiction, and it's rare for me to actually encounter science fiction that really sort of surprises me, that offers me something really, truly new and unique. And so beyond the infinite two minutes that I saw, it did that. That's why I was so impressed with it. But Junkhead also certainly did that because it presents such a fascinating future. And that's without even going into the stop motion stuff, which adds another layer of enjoyability to the movie and another layer of uniqueness. Yeah, it's a, a unique world that like the, the entire setting, like multi-story civilization and we get plunged all the way down to the bottom, and there's like a whole law that's created around everything. Absolutely. And we don't know, like I think at the time we said that we don't know if there's ever planned a sequel, but I was happy where the story ended. And, you know, if they could continue it, that'd be fine, or they could just leave it like that, and it's it's just offers so much for you to kind of like uh, sink your teeth in that it's it, purely because of how rich the setting is. Well, uh, I think I can reveal... Like uh, the directors actually put on Twitter that they're working on a new film right now, which is connected to the world of Junkhead. Okay. Uh, do you know if it's connected to the world of Junkhead, or do you know that it's if if it's a direct sequel, like a direct continuation of the story, or is it just something set in the same universe, but it one doesn't necessarily feature the same characters? I think it's set in the same universe, not necessarily the same characters. Ah, okay, I see. Okay, well, that's I, I suppose that's that's also will be a nice a nice thing to do. Is it still, does it, do they at least have a little bit more money to work on or are they still like just two people like painstakingly setting up everything? Well, this film was originally uh, released in 2017 and it was like a small crew of about four or five people who worked on it and um, it only got a theatrical release uh, last year and it hit the festival circuit for a second time after a few screenings last year. And um, yeah, I think... Uh, like the response to it was phenomenal and so i think they're gonna have a bigger budget to work with okay that's nice at least you know at least we won't have to wait like how many years did it take them to do the first one like 10 years or something i forget you mentioned it but yeah i wrote it, it in my lot. review but it's like yeah it's kind of like the the press material hypes it up as like uh director takide hori working on this solo for a number of years but he he also had a small team of people with him like a like four four other okay. people I was, I, yeah, I, I think you might have mentioned that in your review. I, saw, I, I remembered only two, like him and the uh, one female artist that was working. I did, At school, uh, yeah. But it, yes, but there, was, there must have been a, a couple of assistants as well that, that helped them or did other stuff. But I know that he and Atsuko did all the voices, at least according to the credits. Yeah, there's, like, there have been video clips of them voice acting and sort of uh, like doing real life acting, which they transform into stop motion. Uh, doing for the rounds on variety shows in Japan because it became such a huge hit. Even Takeshi Kitano had it on his variety show. Interesting. That's 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 never going to sound natural. But Takeshi Kitano's variety show. Oh, he's been doing all sorts of crazy shows. I know, yeah. I know, I know. But I'm just saying, it still sounds weird. Yeah. The guy, the guy that blows people's heads off uh, mercilessly in, in his Yakuza movies is entertaining. Is doing a t- night late night talk show. He wanted to kill that comedy persona. He's an artist. <laughs> yeah, of course. Anyway. Um, okay. So uh, anything else about Junkhead? Yeah. Like, uh, it's getting a uh, cinema, uh, theatrical release in Taiwan soon. So hopefully it gets a wider release in the US and UK. I know that you got the Blu-ray 
uh, as a pre- as a gift. Uh, do you know if it's available for sale yet anywhere in the world, or is it is it still that's still to be released at some future date? It's a Japan only release at the time, so like I'll have to ask to be honest. Uh, interesting, interesting. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, so uh, what else? So yeah, I think we're both on our number one movies, and I can guarantee. Um, well, uh, it's going to be different for you and I. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. So why don't you go ahead and uh, say what your number one movie for the year is? So my number one uh, movie is um, The Slug, which is uh, a Korean movie um, that I saw at the Osaka Asian Film Festival, and it's one that made me <laughs> made me cry multiple times. That I watched it. Um, it's the debut feature of Choi Jin Young, as it's it's a small movie about uh, a thirty-something woman who's living in her mother's childhood home, and she's having to sort of like move past the trauma that she experienced in her teenage years, losing her parents during the Asian financial the IMF crisis, the Asian financial crisis in nineteen nineties, and uh, being treated as an outcast by her sort of um uncle's family and um how she confronts the ghosts of that past and it's done in a magical realist way in that she's struck by a bolt of lightning and then she's suddenly able to see her teenage self and she starts talking to her teenage self and at the same time she's going to like she's having to she's facing having to leave the house because her cousins want to sell it and the house is filled with bad memories which she can now see and um that are shown in flashbacks and in a present tense narrative she engages in a romance with um, someone she meets at like a self-help group for people who've had traumatic childhoods and it's about her again having to confront that trauma having to accept that she went through it and move forward and there's no romantic cop-outs it's like the hard emotional work of like just getting through something like that and i find the character's journey really moving so even though I'd seen it like three or four times, like the fifth time I was still <laughs> crying at the same moments because it was just so uh, beautifully delivered by the actors and um, like uh, it's sensitively portrayed by the director uh, with some really sort of um, subtle writing. Yeah, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at some of the actors and I'm, I'm not recognizing any of them in particular. So I, I suspect the actors must also be relatively unknown. Yeah, this is like or, a really low budget movie. Yeah, and, yeah, and it, it's a shame it hasn't been more widely seen because to me it's a perfectly formed film, all about the human condition. Hopefully, hopefully we'll kind of see the light of day again in one of these sort of revivals or festivals that we often get to, to see and review. So that'll be a great opportunity for me to actually get to see it because from your description, it sounds like a, precisely my cup of tea. Korean magical realism is something that I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of. Well, yeah, I hope you and uh, everybody listening gets the chance to see it. You may think, you know, big baby Jason, why are you crying at this? But yeah, I think it's a really special movie. All right. That's, uh, that certainly deserves attention. Okay. So my number one is uh, a movie that I saw on Netflix, and it was Jane Campion's newest film, The Power of the Dog. Uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and a bunch of other actors who are well-known, but whose names I can't remember right now. Kirsten uh, Dunst. Kirsten Dunst, yeah. Oh, I, I, I know her. I like her. Um, Mary Jane yes. Parker. 
Yes. So this is uh, this was a, a, a Mary Jane Campion of the piano fame. Uh, she's done a bunch of other stuff as well since then. Top of the Lake, which is sort of a TV miniseries, which has gotten some attention lately, but I haven't seen any of them. Uh, but The Power of the Dog was kind of hit me a little by surprise. It's a sort of slow-moving, slow-building drama about a, a uh, some ranchers in uh, Montana and uh, one or two brothers in particular, one of who is a little bit boorish and uh, also very emotionally uh, unpredictable, and one of them who is a little bit more timid uh, and more gentle, but also who is controls the estate, uh, is in charge of the estate, and he ends up marrying uh, and uh, adopting the new the son of his uh, wife, that whose husband died. Who is played by Kristen Dunst and her son, so he ends up adopting the son. And the the boorish brother, the violent brother, doesn't really like that his brother uh, took on a new wife. He considers her to be a gold digger. So this is just slowly move, building drama between Benedict Cumberbatch character, who plays this violent character, all this unstable character, basically. Uh, his the his uh, sister in law and her son, and he hates his sister in law, but starts to like their son and then there's this implied homosexuality that he's sort of trying to hide so there's a lot of layers to the film but the ending is absolutely devastating and also absolutely uh i wouldn't call it a twist but you certainly don't see it coming Hmm. and um and just great cinematography fantastic acting i i i was so i have to say about benedict cumberbatch i loved him in sherlock and then pretty much Anything else he's done has been a disappointment for me. I can't think of maybe maybe he's done some other good stuff. I can't think of it. Anything that I've seen him, whether it is in the Marvel stuff or in the Star Trek stuff, he played Khan or whatever else he played, or anything else that he's done. I just it's been a great disappointment for me after sort of the 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 great performance that he was uh, he gave as Sherlock Holmes, and this one kind of redeemed him in my opinion. Mm. Uh, he was just so fantastic in in the Power of the Dog. And that's currently available on Netflix? Yes, yes. It, it is, a, I think, a Netflix original. Okay. That, well, it must be impressive to make your best of last year list. Yes, it was. It, you know, so for the first half of the movie, this, I didn't know. I mean, this was a, it's a well-directed movie, but it didn't seem like it would even make my top 10. And then the second half, that's where it really starts to pick up. It really just kind of, makes a 180 and everything that was sort of very slow in the first half that it kind of catches you by surprise and starts to sort of form kind of to, to reveal more pieces of the puzzle that kind of brings the film into perspective and, and you say ah okay I, I i see now what the film is trying to say and what it's trying to do and it's really uh really it's it's really so you have to basically what i'm saying is this the kind of movie that you have to be a little patient when you get into it it's not it starts slow you need to be a little patient but it your patience is rewarded in, in, in the latter part of the film. Okay. Sounds good. Right. And I think that was it for our top 10 films of the year, our favorite films of the year. I thought it was, uh, perhaps we should give some final thoughts about 2021 as a whole. I think I enjoyed it more than 2020, uh, at least in terms of cinematic, uh, cinematic experiences. 2020 was the last time I went to the cinema. <laughs> I missed the experience. I'm hoping to go uh, with work colleagues to see um, the Batman. 
so 2021 had really great films um but yeah i missed the experience of going to the cinema yeah i remember at the time and i i mentioned this on the show when i kept saying that um what's uh what's the movie that won the oscars last year uh nomadland yeah so i mentioned at least more than once actually that i said that's my favorite movie uh of the of 2020 but then I qualified by saying I haven't seen that many good movies in 2020, or I just haven't seen that many movies in 2020. So that was so that was I think a, a very important statement, meaning that I either didn't get to see that many movies from 2020 that I would consider, you know, that would surpass Nomadland, that would give Nomadland a lot of competition for for its spot as my favorite movie of 2020. However, in 2021, there was no shortage of competition. It was really hard to put to put up together a list because I'd seen so many great movies, both Asian and Western movies. That is just, there was just a lot of, a lot of, a lot to consider, a lot to kind of put the list, to put on the list. So there was a very stark difference from my movie going experience of 2021, of 2020 compared to 2021. I think I need to explore more, which means like having to subscribe to streaming services like Netflix to see a more diverse array of films. I think uh, you know Netflix has a few good selection but generally in terms of cinema they I don't think they invest as much. Okay. I think they invest a lot more in series. Would you say it's just every so often they have like a prestige movie? I think so, yes. They okay. do that because you know mostly for award season. Yeah. Uh they have a lot of smaller movies that pop up here. They like, you know, the, what they did with Sonocion and uh and the like. But in general they they I think they're m- invest a lot more in series like for instance cowboy bebop and tons others okay uh, so yeah I, um i think the lesson um i took away from last year was like uh like strong showing from festivals and i'm grateful for the specialist festivals existing and putting the stuff online but i really need to get back into cinemas uh oh we should also mention some uh some honorable mentions which i'm not going to talk about but i feel like i should mention some things that that maybe could have made my list but didn't quite so Escape from Mogadishu, we talk about that. Uh, Ridley Scott's of The Last Duel. Uh, the Tragedy of Macbeth by Joel McCon. Free Guy, which was the sort of the movie inspired by MMORPGs. Uh, Beyond the Dream, and this was a Hong Kong film about schizophrenia. And Anima, which I also talk about uh, during our episode of uh, the New York Asian Film Festival about lumberjacks in China. Yeah. And those are some, some movies that made my honorable mentions. Didn't debated on whether to include them in my top 10 but you know eventually i had to make a choice okay so my honorable mentions are three sisters um the real thing and over the town all right okay so anything else uh, jason that uh you want to talk about either about uh just 2021 in general about the future what do you is there anything else I'm hoping that the world is turning a corner with COVID-19 and like some form of normality can return this year and um, hope we can all go back to seeing films in cinemas with in relative safety. Yeah. I mean, in the US, you can already do that. You can already go and see films in cinemas uh, with some limitations. I don't know about the UK. Yeah, you can go see films in cinemas i'm kind of like still put off by the whole covid19 situation though yeah i mean there haven't been at least in the area that i live in there haven't been any films in cinemas that i really want to see 
there have been releases like um, the French film Titan, which I might normally go to see just like um, out of curiosity or to support foreign cinema. In, um, but yeah, just the COVID-19 just puts me off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, you know, the world will have no choice but to open up. You know, it's just, it's, it's, we, it's become very obvious that we cannot defeat COVID. We, uh, it's, it's going to, it's already starting to become endemic. So it's just, it's just something that will be one of the main, one of the many ailments that we just, you know, get every, that people can get every once in a while. Yeah. It's, that's just, I think that's just the reality that we have to accept at this point. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to what 2022 will bring everyone. I hope it's good things. Absolutely. So, yeah. All right. So uh, this was a bit of a longer episode, but that's okay because we had a whole year to cover. But if you, if uh, you, the audience, have any questions, if you have any uh, suggestion about films from 2021 that were great and that we never saw, didn't mention, you know, feel free to leave us a comment or send us a, a message on Twitter or send us an email through the website. Otherwise, I hope that you all have a great year ahead, a great 2022, and I'm sure we will uh, in this uh, podcast. Or at least I hope so. I can't make promises. Thank you.